Good to see everybody. Good evening. Can I have you uh, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 6? So far in our study in the book of Revelation, we have moved into chapter 6, which, running into chapter 19, records the tribulation period judgments coming upon this fallen world. In chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus begins to break the seals on the scroll and when he does, various judgments are unleashed upon the inhabitants of the earth. Last week we got as far as the sixth seal. So let's read verse, uh, starting with verse 12 again. I looked when he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon began, uh, became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, as we pointed out last week, this verse is uh, one of the texts that those who hold to a pre-wrath, rapture, eschatology, point to as proof that the wrath of God doesn't start until sometime after the second half of the tribulation period begins. Uh, it's important, and we're reviewing a little from last week, because there's no way we can just jump in, okay? Uh, it's important that they make this claim, because they believe the rapture of the church will happen just before the wrath of God is poured out upon the earth, which means they believe the rapture will occur sometime after the midpoint of the tribulation period, based on Revelation 6, verses 16 and 17, and uh, the opening of the sixth seal, which is what is in view there. Those of us who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture, in other words, that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation period begins, those of us who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture eschatology also believe the rapture will take place before God's wrath, His judgment begins. Uh, it's just that we believe the wrath of God starts with the breaking of the first seal, and the coming of the Antichrist onto the world scene. Uh, those of us who hold to a pre-tribulation view of the rapture believe that, and we've covered this already, that the Antichrist will be the first judgment of God upon this Christ-rejecting world, which officially starts the wrath of God during the tribulation period. The wrath of God starts with the breaking of the first seal. The Antichrist, who comes on the world scene as a man of peace, riding a white horse, he looks like a good guy. He's the ultimate bad guy. We've talked about that, okay? But he's really the first judgment of God. And if he is, in fact, the first judgment of God, and we're talking about the wrath of God, that's his judgment, then the church can't be here to see the Antichrist come to power. I believe he's alive right now. We might even know who he is. Uh, if, if, if he was revealed right now, we might not might even know that's the guy. Wow. But we don't know that. And we won't know it as evangelical Christians, because from what I read in the scriptures, the, uh, the church will be raptured out of here before the Antichrist is revealed, comes the power and so on. So he's the first judgment of the wrath of God. And if he's the first judgment, the church can't be here to see him rise to power. Now, here's the problem. We talked about this last time. Here's the problem with the pre-wrath interpretation of this scripture. In the Greek, verse 17 doesn't say the great day of his wrath has come, as in it's about to start. It says, for the great day of his wrath has already come, or in other words, it has already begun. It's not that God's wrath is about to start. It has been going on for roughly four years at this point in the tribulation period. We have passed the midpoint. We are now in the second half, right at the beginning, no doubt, but 
we are now in the second half of the of the tribulation period by this time so it's been going on for a little over four years now it's just that people the people of the earth and we 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 well, let's say what 10 11 times they're called the earth dwellers in revelation or those that dwell on the earth same thing okay uh these are radical um militant unbelievers uh, a lot of people get saved during the tribulation period uh, there's going to be so many people saved as we're going to see next week uh, when the antichrist martyrs many of them john can't even put a number on them when he sees their souls in heaven uh, so many will get saved during the tribulation period but i personally believe that when the holy spirit makes reference of, uh, to the earth dwellers He's talking about a group of people that will never get saved. That's my conviction. They, they, they won't ever get saved. He, the Holy Spirit is designating this group of individuals as radical anti-Christ individuals, absolutely pro-antichrist. They don't know that. They think he's the Messiah, but we know. Uh, he's coming. He's the antichrist, right? This world leader. And um, But these folks are going to be militantly against anyone that does not take the mark of the antichrist and follow him to worship him we're well not we they tribulation saints are going to be looked upon as devil worshipers at that there's going to be a moral inversion i don't want to get ahead of myself we'll talk about that more i think in chapter 12 but um again it's not that god's wrath is about to start in verse 17 it's been going on for roughly four years at this point it's just that the people of the earth, the earth dwellers, have refused to believe it's God's judgment. If they even believe in God at all, the God of the Bible at all at this point. Uh, rather, they've been chalking it up to, you know, natural disasters. Um, and not as supernatural punishments from God upon their wicked, sinful lives. The prophet Isaiah confirms, I think, this interpretation. Why don't you turn to Isaiah 34? We're going to be jumping around, okay, today. I believe what's in view in Isaiah 34 is the sixth seal. I think he's prophesying about the events that take place in what we call the sixth seal time frame, which we're studying in Revelation 6. Isaiah 34, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Come near you nations to hear, and heed you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. This is a worldwide judgment we're talking about. And his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses. And the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their host shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Verse 8, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Another way of saying it is the day of the Lord's wrath. Guys, it's not that the day of the Lord's judgments are about to start. Those things that Isaiah described are part of of the day of the lord judgments scholars point out that the sixth seal is based on or we see it uh, mentioned in the prophecy of isaiah chapter 2 they say the sixth seal is based on the prophecy of isaiah chapter 2 starting with verse 10 where we read enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be ex exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills that are lifted up, 
upon every high tower and upon every fortified wall. What's he saying? God is going to bring such fierce judgment upon the world. And we talked about this last week. At one point, an earthquake so powerful, the earth literally splits open. It's going to knock down every high mountain, hill, wall. Everything lifted up is going to be brought down. Okay, And that's what God is talking about. Verse 16, upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of men shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. In that day a man will be cast uh, in that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which they made each for himself to worship to the moles and bats to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Guys, Isaiah seems to be prophesying what John is actually seeing when Jesus breaks the sixth seal. You notice in verse 12, Isaiah is telling us that he is writing about the day of the Lord. And he says, in that day, in that day, he goes, up, he goes on, verse 20, people will go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags of the rugged rocks. To hide themselves is the idea. From the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily, verse 21 tells us. The language, guys, of Isaiah's prophecy indicates that the sixth seal will be within, not before the day of the Lord, and therefore will be a part of the day of the Lord's wrath. One author said, and I quote, The fact that unbelievers wait till the sixth seal is broken to say that the day of God's wrath has already come, could simply be explained by the fact that it wasn't until the cosmic disturbances of the sixth seal that they realized that all of the things that have been taking place during what we would call the first five seals have actually, or the first four years we'll say by this point, are actually have actually been the wrath of God, the judgments of God being poured out on the earth, end quote. How do the people of the earth living at that time understand in the first place that what is happening is God's judgment. Uh, yeah, for the first four years, roughly, they've been writing it off to natural phenomena, okay? I mean, yeah, we talked about how that they're probably going to say, well, this is global warming, see? We warned you guys. Uh, they're going to come up with anything to not admit it's God's wrath being poured out upon them for their wicked lives. You know, People are very uh, adept at, uh, at uh, explaining away uh, maybe a judgment of God in their life. Uh, it's not God. Because you know, they, they don't want to come to terms with the fact that if it's God, then maybe they need to repent and get their life right with God. Okay, But, but how do people living at this time even know what's happening? I'm not, I don't, I'm not saying they understand seals are being broken in heaven, but they do understand there, there's judgments being poured out in the earth. Who's told them that they're judgments? Well, as we said last time, during the first three and a half years, uh, right at the very beginning, the God will send two witnesses uh, upon the earth. And they will begin to uh, proclaim God's word, and thousands will start getting saved. Of course, those that get saved will witness to others, and they will get saved. You're going to have this multiplication okay, of people that have received Christ and are now what we call the tribulation saints okay but uh, they're going to be telling people uh about what's happening and they're going to be telling for four years they're no, no doubt screaming uh don't ignore this don't write this off this is not natural phenomenon these are cataclysmic judgments from god see right here in his word he's talking about it and they're going to be a light in the darkness. And finally, they're going to win over people. I'm not saying they're going to get saved, all of them. But finally, they're going to come to the realization that, yes, this is part 
This is God's judgment that's been taking place. Now, instead of falling in their faces and repenting to God, the creation that they worship rather than the Creator, they cry out to to kill them. Boy, that's twisted. Okay? I mean, you know, it, that, it's just amazing. They'd rather have rocks fall on them and kill them rather than get on their faces, repent, and accept Christ. That's how far gone some of these people are. They're so hard-hearted, right? But um, the whole time, though, that the two witnesses and all of their converts to Christianity are preaching about this being God's judgment, the Antichrist, and his followers uh, have been explaining these judgments away. But now as the world enters into the second half of the tribulation period and the judgments of God really begin to ramp up, uh, they can no longer explain away what is happening. It's just natural phenomena. One author agrees with this conclusion. He says, and I quote, The way these unbelievers finally figured out what was going on was, no doubt, the tribulation saints were preaching to them during the first five-sealed judgments that God was in fact judging them for their immorality and idolatry. It was a message these unbelievers didn't want to hear, so they killed many of these tribulation saints for their witness, which is what the fifth seal is all about. You can go back and read the fifth seal. We're talking about a slaughter, a worldwide slaughter. The followers of the Antichrist rounding up anybody preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, and they're slaughtering these people and sending thousands and thousands every day uh, as martyrs into heaven, which John sees in chapter 7. Now, here's the rebuttal that the pre-wrath, and, and let me just say this, I'm not picking on the pre-wrath position, um, but it's relatively new compared to the mid-trib and post-trib uh, rapture views, okay? And uh, when it first hit the Christian church, ah, 20 years ago maybe, I forgot exactly, um, you know, and uh, it took the church by storm. Everyone was convinced the pre-wrath position was the rapture position. One of the problems with any rapture view that has us going, the church going into the tribulation period, the big problem is, think about this, it's teaching Christians to look for the coming of the Antichrist and not for the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus made it very clear that his church was to be watching for his coming, vigilant, right? And the idea is, if I have a rapture eschatology that is mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib, then I believe the church is going into the tribulation period. The Antichrist is going to show up uh, at the beginning. So I'm looking for the Antichrist now and not the return of Jesus Christ. That's one of the big problems for me. Besides the fact, I don't see it in Scripture. There's a lot of great Christians who do see those different positions in Scripture, but I'm just telling you, how, uh, how I feel about it from my studies. But, uh, but here's the rebuttal that the pre-wrath rapture community gives to this interpretation. Uh, they say, you know, how can you say the judgments of Revelation 6, verse 12, uh, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Uh, they say, uh, how can you say that this is part of the day of the Lord judgments when Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, is Peter quoting actually from Joel, we'll talk about this more in a moment, uh, seems to clearly say that these things come before the day of the Lord. Now that's a legitimate um, position. In fact, let, let's turn to Acts 2, okay? Because I'm saying that by the time you come to Revelation 6 and the sixth seal, we're already in the tribulation period for four years, roughly. But they make a good point when they say, yeah, but in Acts 2, when Peter is quoting Joel, it says these things will come about before the day of the Lord. Well, let's read it. First of all, the background. It's the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God has just been poured out, and the church has just been born, Right? And you hear, have all these uh, Jews in town for the Feast of Pentecost, one of the three major, major feasts of the Jewish year. So it would draw pilgrims from all over the known world. Uh, Jerusalem was loaded with pilgrims from all over the known world. And of course, they spoke different uh, languages and dialects, right? 
So here comes the Holy Spirit. He's poured out and the church is born. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, Jesus' disciples there. And so these people in Jerusalem heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Uh, it was not that they didn't see the effects of it, but they heard the sound. You know, so lawn, you know, lawn furniture wasn't being blown around and, and, and things like that. But, but, but they heard a mighty rushing wind and they ran to the place where they thought it was, you know, was going to. And there they see these 120 disciples of Jesus uh, praising God in their various dialects. Well, they made a kind of a foolish accusation. Ah, these men are drunk. And Peter said, as he stands up to give the first spirit-filled sermon of the church age, these men are not drunk as you suppose. Uh, verse 16, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, shall, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Thankfully, I haven't been dreaming anything. So maybe I don't fit into the category of an old man yet. Verse 18, And on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. And here's what I want you to key in on, verses 19 and 20. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Listen, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So I understand where they're coming from, okay? I'm saying all these things of, Revelation 6, 6th seal, well, that the Great Tribulation has already been going on for four years, roughly. And they're saying, well, well no, wait a minute. It says here very clearly that, uh, that you know, the sun, moon, all, this, all these uh, signs in the heavens will happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Let me stop and just say this, okay? And, and can I just say to you guys, try to put on your thinking caps tonight, all right? We're, we're going to be diving into a subject that is um, very technical. And, uh, and, and I, I, I apologize. I'm, I'm going to try not to confuse anybody, uh, but I know I'm going to. Um, and and it, I just, as a teacher, I can't teach something technical like this without really getting into it. If I don't, if I just kind of overview it, just kind of gloss over it, it's going to raise a lot more questions than it answers for many of you, okay? So bear with me, all right? Bear, you can come up afterwards, we can talk, or you can go online uh, tomorrow and pull the notes down. We'll have all the scripture references and so on. Everything focuses around a term, an eschatological term called the Day of the Lord, a very pivotal uh, term in the Bible when it comes to uh, judgment. Let me just say this. The day of the Lord is a phrase that's used specifically. Uh, when I say specifically, it's actually the words the day of the Lord appear in the Old Testament 19 times. But there's many other references in that day or something like that re referring to the day of the Lord. But 19 times is the words the day of the Lord appear in the, in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament. Acts 2.20, which we just read where Peter quoted Joel chapter 2, verse 31, then 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2, 2 Peter 3, verse 10. Now listen, some associate the day of the Lord with what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 12, when he mentioned the day of God. And they, they say, well, that's the same thing. No, it's not. We'll talk about that more in a second. It's not a gigantic thing, but I want you to understand something. We got to get our terms uh, clear, Okay. So when you read in 2 Peter 3, 12, where he talks about the day of God, after having just mentioned the day of the Lord in verse 10, don't confuse the two as if they're talking about the same thing. They're not, okay? Also, this term is called by different words in, in the Bible. Uh, it's also referred to as the day of wrath in Zephaniah 1, 15, and the day of darkness in Joel 2, verse 2, and Zephaniah 1, 15. One scholar and New Testament professor whose name is Renald Showers said, and I quote, The day of the Lord refers to God's special interventions 
into the course of world events to judge his enemies, accomplish his purpose for history, and thereby demonstrate who he is, the sovereign God of the universe, end quote. The Bible indicates that, and, and please understand, because if you don't get this, you're going to not understand, uh, you're going to get confused when it comes to the day of the Lord. The Bible indicates that there have been several local day of the Lord judgments that took place in the Old Testament period when God raised up several nations to execute judgment on other nations. For example, God raised up Babylon to judge the southern kingdom of Judah during the 7th and 6th centuries B.C. We also read in the Old Testament how God used Babylon to judge Egypt and Medo-Persia to judge Babylon in the 6th century. For example, and why don't you turn to this, Ezekiel 30. Give you one example. In Ezekiel 30, verse 2, God says, Son of man, and that's a title for Ezekiel, okay? Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, woe to the day, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of it will be a day of clouds, the time of the Gentiles. The sword shall come upon what country? Egypt. So it's not a whole world judgment. It's coming upon one nation, Egypt, and great anguish shall be in Ethiopia. Now, guys, these were local day of the Lord judgments upon nations during the Old Testament period, but Every time they're mentioned in Scripture, they have a, um, they were foretelling a future, ultimate day of the Lord judgment that was coming, all right? So it's kind of God, how God gives us little uh, previews, okay, in Scripture of different things, right? Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was a little preview of the Antichrist. Some people think he was the Antichrist, all right? If you study Antiochus, and how he uh, was the Syrian king between the Testaments around the second century BC, and compare him with what the Bible says about the coming of the Antichrist. Very similar, very similar. Uh, but he was a little preview of an ultimate leader that was coming. Well, these day of, local Day of the Lord judgments were little previews of an ultimate Day of the Lord judgment that wouldn't be local, it would be worldwide. Worldwide, okay? In fact, often in the same passage, this is what I want you to see, uh, often in the same passage, there is a local day of the Lord judgment mentioned, but then as you keep reading, uh, the prophecy broadens and scopes out to talk about the future worldwide day of the Lord judgment that's coming. Uh, prophecy often does this. If you've taken the time to study prophecy in the Bible, you, and we've talked about this, there is often a short-term partial fulfillment and then a long-term ultimate fulfillment. So it shouldn't surprise us, as we're studying the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, how a nation is in view as we're reading it. Babylon, Egypt, something like that. But then all of a sudden the language scopes out and becomes very broad and, and goes beyond that particular country. Give an example. Turn to Isaiah 13. All right, so Isaiah 13, starting with verse 6. The prophet says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand, which is a local judgment pronounced upon Babylon. We get that from verse 1 of Isaiah 13. So what's in view here uh, at the first is a local judgment upon Babylon, calling it the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp, every man's heart will melt, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Now, 
Babylon is in view there. We know that from verse 1. All right? But now the language broadens to include the whole world in a future day of the Lord's judgment. Verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. It sounds very much like the language of the sixth seal. All right. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil. See, the world is in view here now, not just Babylon, right? And the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth. See, the whole world is now in view and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. One author elaborates, he said, and I quote, The Old Testament prophets used the expression, Day of the Lord, to describe both near historical judgments and distant eschatological or end times judgments. And he's got all these scripture references. If you want this, you can come up here and take them down or... Uh, pull them off the internet tomorrow. Uh, he goes on to say six times they call it, now in the Old Testament, the day of doom, four times the day of vengeance. These are horrifying judgments from God, rendered because of the world's overwhelming sinfulness, end quote. All right, let me stop and bring in something Peter said in his second epistle that I think is important that we understand. And if you haven't been confused up until this point, um, you might just be confused as we look at this. Um, let's read First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter three verses ten to thirteen, and we'll try to, you know, and I'll, I'll explain to you why I feel we need to go here. All right, but Second Peter three verse ten. But the day of the Lord. So Peter's talking about the very period that we've been looking at. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will dissolve being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for, for new heavens and a new earth uh, in which righteousness dwells. Bible scholars and teachers have debated. Does the Bible teach that there is one more catastrophic worldwide judgment that is coming? The first one was Noah's flood, okay? But they have been debating, is there one more catastrophic worldwide judgment that is coming? In other words, the tribulation period that we have been studying, studying Revelation 6, uh, chapter 6 through chapter 19. Or is there actually two, two worldwide judgments still coming, which would be the tribulation period we're studying in Revelation. But, or, and I should say not or, but and the total annihilation of the physical universe that Peter talks about. Most Bible scholars say one more is coming. And yet the Bible does talk about both the tribulation period and the total annihilation of the physical universe. Sounds like two more worldwide judgments that are coming separated by the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years. The answer to that question lies in our understanding of the term day of the Lord, which Peter makes reference to and associates with the physical universe being vaporized in a future judgment. Now, this is what is confusing to many. Many Bible teachers are comfortable uh, with the idea that the day of the Lord encompasses the seven-year tribulation period, culminating with the return of Christ. And we would all lived happily ever after, biblically speaking, if Peter hadn't chimed in and called the annihilation of the entire physical universe where everything is going to dissolve in zillion degree fervent heat, if Peter hadn't thrown that into the mix, we would have been fine. 
but he calls it the day of the Lord, and we know it doesn't happen until after the millennial kingdom. Now what do we do? And I'm not mad at you guys. I'm just, you know, I'm just being passionate about it. Okay. <laughs> Again, Second Peter three ten. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Yeah, vaporized. The, the entire physical universe vaporized, not just the earth. Again, the day of the Lord is a term used in Scripture to describe God's cataclysmic judgments on the wicked. The day of the Lord, as Peter used it in 2 Peter 3, is not a literal day, of course, uh, but a period of time that will start with the breaking of the first seal, as we know it, in Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2, and will end with the destruction of the present material universe uh, by God. God will destroy it. Uh, so we'll start with the coming of the Antichrist. I'm talking about the day of the Lord now. Peter uh, talks more about it. We've been looking in Revelation how that, you know, starting in chapter 6, verse 1, that the day of the Lord actually begins with the coming of the Antichrist, right? We often think it ends with the return of Jesus Christ. Then we have the Millennial Kingdom. But then Peter says, well, no. It, the day of the Lord is going to scope out until the end of the millennial kingdom when God's going to vaporize the physical universe, okay? Um, so it's going to start with the coming of the Antichrist and, uh, and then we'll end at the end of the millennial kingdom with the destruction of the material universe, which uh, Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3.10. And then the Lord is going to create a new heavens and a new earth, which is what Peter mentions in 2 Peter 3, verse 13. To really understand the day of the Lord. And I'm trying to put this all together, guys. Okay? I'm trying to put it all together. And, you, and I've just explained to you the, 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 the problem. It's not a problem for God. He knows what he's talking about. Sometimes it's a problem for us understanding what God's talking about. Okay? Let me tell you what I believe. And I could be wrong. I'll just throw it out to you. Okay? To really understand the day of the Lord, the whole period of time that it's encompassed in that term you need to understand a standard jewish day everything in god's word is written from the perspective of israel and god's chosen people the jews i mean you know so to understand the day of the lord which is a term that first appeared in the old testament and so now in the new testament writers are re referring back to that as a frame of reference and then applying it to a coming world judgment, okay? To understand the day of the Lord, you, you need to understand a standard Jewish day. Remember, the Jews are on a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar, which means their day starts at sundown and ends at sundown. In other words, excuse me, the Jewish day is from sundown to sundown, just as it will be with the day of the Lord. Let me explain. It's going to start with the darkness of judgment during the tribulation period, which will then be followed by the dawn of a new day in the history of mankind, a kingdom age, a time of glorious light as God's truth, his righteousness, and justice fill the world. Right now we are in a dark age. Uh, and the Jews believe this because they believe since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, we've entered into an evil, dark age of man's rebellion. They're waiting for a glorious new age, which is the Messiah coming and establishing his kingdom, which will be the dawn of a new day. Uh, you know, a, a, like, uh, like a, a beautiful, glorious new day, the sun rising. In Malachi, Jesus is even likened when he comes to healing in his wings. What, in his wings? Well, commentators believe that, speaking of the rays of light, like a new day, the rays of a new a light of a new day, when Jesus comes, he's going to establish a kingdom of light, right? And it's going to be, the world is going to be filled with the knowledge of God. The, the, the prophet says, you won't have to witness to your neighbor. Come to church and, and, and know the Lord. Everyone's going to know me. Not that they're all going to be saved, but they're all going to know who Jesus is because he's going to be reigning visibly from Jerusalem, all right? Um, but during that time, God's, uh, truth will fill the earth, uh, cover the earth like the waters of the sea do right now, as Jesus reigns over the whole earth from Jerusalem. 
the day of, uh, excuse me, the um, the day of the kingdom age. Um, the, I should say the kingdom age is uh, one thousand years in duration, and um, it is going to be a day of light, as we just said. Uh, it will end though in darkness. Remember now, Jewish day starts with darkness, ends with darkness. Okay. Just like the day of the Lord. Starts with the darkness of judgment during the tribulation period, followed by the day of the dawning of a new day, the kingdom age. What is this that's going to end in darkness? Well, Revelation 20 tells us that at, at the end of the tribulation period, the Lord Jesus is going to resurrect all the people who died as unbelievers, that right now they're being kept in Hades for the judgment of the great day. And they are going to be, and God always likens judgment to darkness. Okay, uh, it's a dark it's a dark period, but God is judging wicked. So the, the the this this day of the Lord starts with judgment, darkness, followed by light of God's glorious kingdom age, and it's going to end in darkness. Revelation twenty, when the Lord resurrects all these unbelievers and they stand before Him at the great white throne judgment, and then they are cast into hell for eternity. And uh, after that point, God is going to destroy heaven and earth, as we read about in Second uh, Peter 3. And that's going to be the final act of God's judgment. The final judgment that God ever does will be to destroy this present physical universe. Why? Well, because as we read, and I'm getting ahead of myself, I know I wrote it down somewhere. Um, let me just say it now. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates uh, each of the six days of creation, he's after every day said it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Uh, chapter 1, verse 31, God stepped back and said it was all very good. So God's creation was very good, obviously. God can't do anything that's not good, all right? But it didn't take the devil long to take the form of a serpent and enter the garden and beguile Eve, and she ate the forbidden fruit, gave to Adam, he ate. And the whole of God's creation was not corrupted by sin, the fall. And apparently it wasn't just the earth. The whole universe was corrupted as well. All right, the whole universe. Now God has been working to redeem people out of this corrupt fallen universe, primarily the planet earth, okay? And... Um, after everybody that wants to be saved is saved, and we're talking about people in the tribulation, or the millennial kingdom. Uh, you know, there are people going to get saved in the millennial kingdom because they're going to be born at that time. And they're going to have their physical bodies. And they're going to need to receive Christ. All right? Now, we who are alive now will be there with our glorified bodies. We, we don't have to get saved again. But there are going to be people that are going to enter into the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes with their physical bodies. They have hid out, escaped the Antichrist. They're alive when Jesus returns. They're believers. And so they're allowed to enter into the millennial They marry, have kids. Their kids have kids. It, during this thousand-year period of time, who knows how many people? The, the earth is going to be like uh, a paradise. Uh, there'll be no harsh climactic areas on the earth, no Siberias, uh, no Antarcticas. The earth will be very lush, tropical white, like it was in the Garden of Eden. And uh, with those kind of conditions, people can live anywhere on the earth, basically. And who knows how many billions of people in a thousand years, where death is very rare, are going to be born. Well, a lot of those folks uh, are going to get saved. Many will not. And they will be alive when the, when the devil is released from the bottomless pit where he's been bound for a thousand years. He will go out to the face of the whole earth trying to tempt people to follow him in one final rebellion against the Lord. Okay, and I'm really getting ahead of myself. Um, and as soon as the last person chooses to follow the devil in rebellion against Jesus, who has been on the throne for a thousand years in a perfect world kingdom, is the, when the last person decides to follow Satan, there is no battle. There is no battle. Then the great white throne judgment is set, is set up. Unbelievers are resurrected uh, from uh, Hades. And they're all sentenced to hell. But 
it's a set, it's like, well, how severe is their judgment going to be in hell? That's what's determined at the great white throne judgment. They're all going to hell. But, you know, who has committed the most sins and will suffer the most punishment, all right? Um, so I, God's going to destroy then the physical, it's been corrupted, the physical universe in the Garden of Eden. And he's going to recreate the whole universe uh, called a new heaven. That's just a way of saying a new universe, a new earth. And we're going to live in this glorious city called the New Jerusalem. All right. Uh, this new creation will be untainted, never having been tainted by sin ever or ever will be. Okay. But um, it's the ultimate never-ending day. Think about this. Okay. Um, when 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 the Lord uh, destroys heaven and earth and recreates it, at that point we move from time into eternity. The tri the millennial kingdom millennial means a thousand. It's a thousand years long. That's still a measurement of time. And so after the thousand years is done, uh, we are going to move into what the theologians call the eternal state, probably a new dimensionality too. Uh, we're not even prepared to right now to even understand what's coming. Uh, when the Lord makes a new heaven, a new earth, and who knows what, how many dimensions we're going to live in. We live in four right now. Uh, and it's pretty spect. Think about a two-dimensional existence. There was a book written years ago, I, I didn't read it, I heard about it, where the author postulated a two-dimensional universe. Well, in two dimensions, you can but you can only perceive the 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 line of somebody. You can't hug. There's no there. You can come in contact on two uh, two dimensions, but there's no hugging and all. Three, three dimensions as opposed to two makes life incredibly more fulfilling and wonderful than you, know, you would live in a two dimensional universe, right? What if we lived in a million dimension universe? We can't even imagine what that existence would be like. It's incredible, all right? Something to think about. Um, but as we move into the eternal state, this is going to be the never-ending day. What do I mean? There'll be no more darkness. Not Literally, yeah, there'll be no more morning and evening, that kind of thing. But there'll be no more darkness morally, spiritually, and, of course, no more darkness of judgment because God's not going to have to judge uh, thus, those of us in the eternal state, we're, we're all madly in love with Jesus and totally want to obey him and we're the redeemed and have our glorified bodies and so on. All right. The term, so Peter talks about, you know, the day of the Lord, okay, in verse 10. But then he mentions uh, the day of God in verse 12. And again, it's not the same as the term day of the Lord. The day of the Lord once more, refers to the time of worldwide judgment that is coming from the time the Antichrist comes on the scene to the destruction of the physical universe. The day of God refers to the eternal state, consisting of the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, the place where believers will live for all eternity, and again, probably a brand new dimensionality. Uh, Peter admonishes believers uh, in Second uh, Peter 3, he goes on to say that uh, considering the transitory nature of this present world, he admonishes believers right now to live lives of holy conduct and godliness because as John put it in 1 John 2.17, the Apostle John said the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Okay, Peter seems to add that, and I just... I just thought this was interesting. I thought I'd include it, but because uh, we're kind of looking at 2 Peter 3, verses 10 to 12. But uh, Peter seems to add that by living this way, we can actually hasten the coming of the day of God. Do you see it there? We can actually, if we live a godly, righteous life now, we can actually hasten the coming of the day of God, which is the eternal state. Now, of course, some commentators believe that we as Christians can, again, hasten the coming of the day of God by living godly lives, praying, witnessing, bringing others to Christ, and so on. They say this will quicken the coming of the day of God, the eternal state. Um, others say that there's nothing that believers can do to rush uh, the eternal state. 
because it has to come after the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years. That's a set period of time. Uh, you can't you know, take away from that number of years. It has to be a thousand years because that's what God said it would be. Rather, they favor the translation of 2 Peter 3.12, not hastening the coming of the, day of, the, of the day of God, but desiring earnestly the coming, as the RSV translates it, or realizing that we are rapidly approaching the coming of the day of God, as the King James translates it. So in other words, Peter is saying, you know what, start living life, a holy life, a godly life. Because before you know it, the world that you have known all your life is going to be over. It's going to be over. Not when you die necessarily, but it's going to eventually be over. I mean, let's, a thousand years. Well, Peter said it's like a one day to the Lord. In a day like a thousand years, right? So you think, well, a thousand years, one day, that's a long time. When you compare it to eternity, it's nothing. So let's start really living godly lives now, right? Once again, though, Peter goes on to tell us that eventually, and we've talked about it, but uh, eventually, after the millennial kingdom, the Lord Jesus will go on to destroy the entire physical universe, again, corrupted by the fall, and create a whole new universe. He talks about that in 2 Peter 3, uh, 13. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens, again, a new universe, and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, we're going to see this become a reality in Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, when John says, Now I saw, now John's talking about the millennial kingdom is over. He's talking about the eternal state has come. It's what he's seeing. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. That's interesting. We'll have to wait till we get there to tell you why. Uh, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Um, here's where I have my notes. <laughs> Genesis 131. Uh, the original creation that God said was very good was corrupted by sin. Therefore, he destroys it and creates something brand new, something that has never been tainted by sin. And I want to throw in Isaiah 65, verse 17, interesting a verse along these lines. For behold... God speaking, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. How can I be happy in heaven if I know some of my loved ones didn't make it? You won't remember your loved ones that didn't make it. God is saying, I'm going to wipe away. When he talks about wiping away every tear from your eyes, part of it is going to wipe away our memory banks so that we only remember Jesus we only know what he did. Probably remember our lives somewhat on the earth. Maybe not. I don't know. But, but when he makes a new heaven and a new earth, the former earth and universe that we're living in right now will no longer be remembered nor come to mind. That's an interesting statement. All right. Uh, as we wind this down, back to our study in Revelation 6. Again, the question is, and bear with me now, we're in a home stretch. Again, people are going to have, have said, all right, but what about Acts 2, verses 19 and 20, where Peter is quoting Joel 2, verses 30 and 31, where God says, I'll just quote Acts to you, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Listen before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, again, I believe that the day of the Lord technically begins with the breaking of the first seal, which brings the Antichrist into, uh, into power on the world scene. This then will be followed by the next four seals, which we've studied in chapter 6, which will include war, famine, pestilence, and death. They will be followed by the breaking of the sixth seal. Again, Revelation 6, verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll, 
when it has rolled up every mountain and island was moved out of its place and we'll just stop there it's true it's true that in both acts 2 and joel 2 god prophesied that cosmic disturbances would occur before the coming of the great and awesome day of the lord uh, these cosmic disturbances don't happen until the sixth seal is broken. Again, during the second half of the seven-year period, and yet I'm claiming that the day of the Lord has already begun with the opening of the first seal and confirmed by the testimony of the unbelievers at that time who cry out in verse 17, the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? One more time, the Greek is in verse 17 of Revelation 6, for the great day of his wrath has already come, not is about to start. In other words, it has begun with the first five seals. So how do we explain this? Just bear with me a little while longer. Again, what I'm saying is, I believe the Bible teaches that ever since the coming of the Antichrist, the tribulation period has been going on. We're in God's wrath, or they will be, okay? But when the sixth seal is broken... All these cosmic disturbances happen in the heavens. And then we read in Acts 2 that these things were prophesied to happen before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So what do we do with this? What do we, how do we explain it? The 70th week of Daniel, which is what the, the seven-year tribulation period is called in the Old Testament, will start the tribulation. Now, what Jesus said about this period of time is very important, okay? Remember in Matthew 24, uh, verses 4 to 14, he talks about the entire seven-year period. He calls the first three and a half years the beginning of birth pangs. And then he calls, or then we get into the second half, okay? What, what I believe is, the tribulation starts with the beginning of birth pangs and is going to be followed by great tribulation as the pangs of hard labor come upon a woman the closer she gets to the birth of the child. And of course, as the world enters the tribulation period, first three and a half years, the beginning of sorrows, the beginning of birth pangs, moving past the second, the midpoint into the second half, now you have great cataclysmic judgments. The world is reeling from the, the, the scope and the intensity of the judgment that will be happening on the earth in this last three and a half years. Jesus likens it to a woman in great labor, or, the, or the, the pains of hard labor, which of course she endures until the birth of the child. The earth is going to go into a period of, of hard labor, great tribulation, which will then give birth to the return of Christ and the birth of the kingdom age. Um, again, Jesus likened this period of time to a woman in labor, all right? And so I believe the day of the Lord is going to begin with lesser day of the Lord judgments, the first five seals, and will progress into, listen, great and awesome day of the Lord judgments during the second half of the tribulation, which we call great tribulation. Sometimes as Christians, we get a little sloppy with our terms. We call the whole seven years the great tribulation. That's technically not true, and it kind of confuses what the Bible is teaching. The whole seven years is the tribulation period. First three and a half years, like the woman beginning labor. The last three and a half years, great tribulation, like a woman in hard labor. It's the last three and a half years that is technically called the great tribulation. Listen, Acts 2.20. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the, what? Great and awesome day of the Lord. Guys, that is how you can have scriptures talking about the day of the Lord being already in progress. And then they talk about the great and awesome day of the Lord about to begin. We're talking about the first and, first and last half of the tribulation period. So the, the tribulation period brings judgments, the first three and a half years, but those cataclysmic cosmic judgments, 
don't happen until after the midpoint when we enter into the great tribulation period. And that's really what Joel was prophesying and Peter was quoting. Again, the moon uh, it will turn into blood. Um, the, uh, uh, the sun shall be turned to darkness, moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so this is what I believe is in view. It's what some commentators call the broad and narrow aspects of the day of the Lord. Turn to Malachi real quick and we'll close. I hope I haven't confused everyone. I've tried to keep it. I was confusing myself a little this afternoon. I had to keep going over my notes to make sure I had it clear in my mind. I mean, I know what's being taught, but sometimes when you're trying to fit it all together and just and, and verbalize it, um, you, you really have to be careful. And I, I may have fallen short of that goal, not to confuse. But um, notice um, what Malachi prophesies in chapter 4, verse 5. God speaking. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, listen, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, guys, when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see, I believe one of the two witnesses is, is Elijah. Okay, I believe one of the two witnesses is Elijah for uh, some good reasons, I think. The ministry of the two witnesses has to take place before. Malachi tells us that in chapter 4, verse 5. The, the ministry of Elijah, we know he's part of a, of a, a duo. Um, I'll just go on record and say I think the other one is Moses. And we'll... Look at that, we get to chapter 11. But the ministry of the two witnesses has to take place, as Malachi says, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord begins. Now that's going to start second half of the tribulation period, which means the ministry of the two witnesses will, have to, will, will primarily fall within the first half of the tribulation period, which is 1260 days as defined by Revelation 11, verse 3. So again, Rapture happens, every true believer on the face of the earth is out, out of here. There's no witness left. There's no light. Every true believer is now in Jesus' presence. God never leaves himself without a witness. The first thing he does is send the two witnesses back. And they begin to evangelize, share God's truth. Many start getting saved. And then they start witnessing, and then others get saved. Said, but all this is going to take place in the first half of the tribulation period. Before... The Great Tribulation begins, which Malachi talks about as, as the, um, uh, of the, uh, of the great and dreadful day of the Lord begins. Okay? Um, they are also instruments of God's judgment, the two witnesses, as we're going to see. Um, God's judgment upon the earth during that first part of the Tribulation period. Um, but their ministry will be a part of the day of the Lord judgment, but still be conducted before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Malachi 4, 5, and uh, as Peter uh, mentions in Acts 2, verse 20, and so on. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Well, chew on that for a while, all right? Um, we're done with chapter 6. So next week, God willing, we'll get into chapter 7. But... Um, you know, and I know I've probably belabored this. We've touched on it at different points in our study in Revelation 6 so far. But um, if you don't understand that the last seven years, that is called the, the 70th week of Daniel, uh, we know it as the seven-year tribulation period. If you don't realize it's broken into two halves, tribulation and great tribulation, again, like a woman in labor. And there are things that are prophesied that are going to come before the second half comes. A lot of people misinterpret that to say, well, it's what's being talked about here is that these things will happen before the tribulation period even begins. That's not true. Uh, the first three and a half years will start, and then God will bring cosmic judgments in the, in the sky. Uh, of course, the two witnesses will have already been on the earth for three and a half years uh, sharing God's truth. So if you don't nail that down, you know, you're not going to really uh, understand. You're going to have, uh, like a lot of folks do, um, the pre-wrath rapture position. Uh, 
I believe is an error because they have not really been meticulous in defining their terms. Nothing worse than sloppy um, interpretation. You're going to get messed up every time. You've got to really read what's being said in its context. And if you have to take some paper and, and mark everything down where you're kind of fitting it all together in your mind, do it. But uh, too many Christians are lazy. And they read the Bible quickly and make snap judgments and they got wrong theology and applications all messed up. Don't, don't go there. Okay, study your Bible meticulously. Make sure you look at the context and uh, exactly what God is saying because it matters. If every jot and tittle in God's word has been put there, then I would imagine every word, every tense of you know the verbs and whether a, a noun is plural or singular, whole, whole doctrines have been built around those things. So let's be careful how we study God's word. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truth. Again, your word is truth. We've covered a lot of ground, a lot of technical stuff, Lord, and I don't claim to have done a great job with it, but please uh, take what, you know, has been said tonight and, uh, you know, like Genesis 1-1, uh, out of the confusion, bring clarity, <laughs> Lord, as only your spirit can do. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.